Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast, proudly brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hey, this is Rick Springfield, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. To say I'm a fan is an understatement of Rick Springfield. I've followed his career right back in the days of Wickedy Whack, and I'm so pleased to have him on the line. Rick Springfield, hello. Wow, wickety whack! That, that is the very beginning. Well, it is. Uh, uh, Danny Finley on drums. I mean, how good was that band? Yes, yes, I know. The only thing before that was uh, a version of MPD with Danny that I went to uh, Vietnam with in 1968-69. Then we came home and formed yeah, Wickety Whack. Yeah, that, that was a real fun band. It was. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It's the first time it actually ever got any. Uh, any kind of publicity or we'd ever got any attention as players so we're well except for danny then he had a big a big run with mpd yeah. but uh, for us it was the rest of us it was it was so new. rick let's go right back where were you born i was born in sydney in 1949 so tell me how did you get the music into you was it influenced by somebody in the family yeah my dad was in the army my dad was an aussie army uh lifer but uh he was also a great singer, and, and we didn't have TV when I was a kid, so we lived out in the country, out on an army base. And uh, for entertainment after dinner, we'd gather around the player piano and, and sing. You know, I, I, it was all like show tunes, like, uh, you know, Oklahoma and Carousel and all that stuff. But that's really, you know, we, we that's what we do for entertainment after dinner. We would be singing, and someone would be vo- volunteer to pump the... The piano, and I actually still have that piano. My mom passed away a few years ago, and I brought it home with me. Oh, that's incredible. I, I remember that piano, too. Bye-bye, Blackbird, bye-bye. And you, yes, <laughs> that's right. That was one of them. Your feet are pedaling, the whole thing. It was just a bit of... I know. It was a workout. <clears throat> but it was magical, wasn't it? It gave you that early early intro into, into all different kinds of music, I guess. Yeah, well, it, it kind of brought it home that it was something that I could do, even though I was, you know, pedaling a piano. I was still singing. It made it kind of, I think it made it accessible at an early age, you know. Yeah. So when did the uh, guitar land on your lap? Well, we, my dad was shipped to England when I was about nine years old, and it was over there that uh, Cliff Richard and the Shadows were just getting going. We landed there in 1959, and... Cliff and the Shadows was just getting going, and that was really it for me. And when I saw that red Fender Strat on Hank Marvin, I thought, that's it. That's piano is not for me, it's guitar. And Hank is happily retired in Perth right now. Yes, I know. I had dinner with him, actually, in the count- when we did the countdown thing. And uh, the 14-year-old in me was screaming, you know, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's Hank Marvin. But, of course, I had to maintain as an adult. Yeah, that's exactly when I met him, too, because he, he came backstage and... and, and your knees, yeah. your knees go weak. Oh, it's he's a giant part of a, a of a lot of our history, and uh, you know, a lot of the Americans. I, I, I'm always telling Americans that you know, uh, Clapton and Brian May and and Jimmy Page and all those guys, they, they focused on Hank when they first started because he was the first. They, he was the guy that said, "Well, geez, maybe we can do this, not just for Americans." And Hank started all those guys. And in Australia, it was probably uh, Robbie G, Robbie Porter, who ended up being your record company and manager. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you wanted to play Hawaiian guitar, yeah. <laughs> yeah I know, I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so you're learning guitar, and, and, and everything's good. And, and, and was Wickedy Whack your, your first band, or did you have a couple of garage bands before that? 
Yeah, I, I had uh, my my best friend John Kennedy, who I'm still still friends with and still see when I come home. Um, we started playing guitar together when we were like 14, and uh, our first band was I think called the Icy Blues. It was a wonderful name that I yeah don't know don't know what I was thinking, but anyway, uh, we you know we just do cover Beatles and the kind of R and B stuff that we that we thought we could play, and it was probably pretty horrible, but uh, we got. You know, played at uh, parties and and, uh, and basically just you know, if kids had a birthday party, they'd hire us. Which hiring is that? That's a yeah. That, we couldn't really call it hiring. I guess <laughs> we play for free. Yeah. Look, we're having a party. Do you think you could bring your guitar? Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I've got a band. I've got a band. So tell me, Zoot came along. You you were in uh, in Melbourne. Uh, how did uh, you and B hook up, and uh, how did that happen? Uh, in Wickedy Whack, we had uh, we were starting to get, make some noise in Melbourne, and uh, Ian Melzer and Johnny Young, who were the hot writer and producers at the time, they'd just done uh, the real thing for Russell, and yeah. you know, and John was writing a string a string of hits. And he saw us and wanted, you know, uh, wanted to write a song for us. So actually, I didn't know this. That Russell Morris actually co-wrote the song that Johnny gave us. It was a song called "Billy's Bikey Boys," and it was never released. That was the first one, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, kind of. It wasn't really a hit because it wasn't really released. It was uh, okay. the bass player was upset that they picked me to sing it, so he said, uh, so he broke the band up because it was his band. Oh. So the band basically <laughs> broke up before the record came out, but. Beeb was uh, came in to sing uh, backgrounds on it, and that's when I first met Beeb. Uh-huh. And then when the band broke up, uh, Daryl had seen us playing when we came down and did our showcase at like Birdies or somewhere, wherever in Melbourne. And he said, Daryl said, I want to be in a band with that guy. And so when uh, I was a free agent, uh, they approached me, and I was, you know, they were already a well-known group, so it was very exciting for me, and they're about to launch uh going to operation starlift that was like the big tour with uh, jo- with johnny farnham and russell and masses apprentices and everybody so it was a big deal for me to, to join uh, zoot at that point i did a deal with my parents when i was going to kedron high school in brisbane that if i did my study during the week give me four hours of uptight on saturday and it came in in brisbane on saturday afternoon so i saw your guys first uh, appearance on uptight right. and then the progression but when i read that you were together from 69 to 71 i thought gee i thought it was longer than that but what an impact you guys had <laughs> i know it's it's weird isn't it i mean it, to me it seemed like years yeah. but it was just a very very short time yeah no it happened fast and uh and you know, changing from the whole bubblegum thing to to trying to take on, you know, guitar-based kind of slightly heavier feel, which was just not done back then. It was it was kind of unheard of. But you know, we wanted to to try it because Led Zeppelin was on the horizon, and you know, I was kind of done with the whole pink teeny bopper thing, and they were too. So, yeah. but it was yeah, we did a lot in those in those short uh, in that shorter time. So you had one times, two times, three times, four, Monty and me, the freak, and then the big one, Eleanor Rigby. Now, did you arrange that that song? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I lo- always loved the song, and I I was very influenced by Hendrix. Of course, everybody was. But I said, what would Hendrix? How would Hendrix play Eleanor Rigby? So I made up this riff, which actually is more Black Sabbath than than Hendrix. And uh, yeah, and I the guys came down to my house to rehearse because I didn't have a car and. Um, 
I couldn't drive, so they come down to my mom and dad's house in Parkdale, and <laughs> yeah. I showed it to them, thinking they'd go, nah, we don't really like that, but they loved it, and they jumped on it, and we kind of finished the vocal arrangement, and that was, uh, we never thought of it as a single. I was just looking for stuff that was a, we could play that would live that would, you know, give us a heavier sound mm. than, than, than the pop stuff that they were known for, so... Uh, yeah, that's kind of how it came about. Well, just the intro enough would have would have been enough to blow your head off. <laughs> yeah, I probably stole that too. So you know, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it, it was interesting. Now, th- that's when you you developed the idea of throwing the white Gibson uh, straight up into the air and catching it as it as it fell towards Earth. Now, uh, very spectacular, a, a great uh, stagecraft. Uh, did you ever drop the the Gibson? Yeah, I did. We're, we were doing some beach shows, actually, for a 3AK, and uh, I, I threw it up at the end of a set. We're playing on the beach, and I threw it up at the end of the set, and the, the wind caught it, and I think it almost knocked me unconscious, hit me in the head. Uh, so it wasn't a great way to end the show, oh, but, it, no. but most of the time I caught it. I got I got pretty good at that. I remember smashing a couple of lights in the TV uh, uptight, you know, the TV shows, and I get it up there pretty high. Man, you were you were spectacular at it, but uh, the the beach concert probably would have uh, looked and sounded like a Spinal Tap moment. Yes, it was very much a Spinal Tap moment. <laughs> <laughs> Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives since 1934. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Hey, this is Rick Springfield, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. After Zoot, you wrote Speak to the Sky. Uh, well, my dad actually uh, got real sick, and it was kind of uh, it was a, like a prayer for him. Plus, my mom, she, she'd heard all the Zoot, heard us rehearsing all the Zoot stuff and playing as loud as we could, and she said, why don't you write a nice song like the bicycle song? <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> By the mixtures. So I said, all yeah, right, I'll give it a shot. Him. So I wrote uh, Speak to the Sky, and uh, that was the first single, actually, first solo single. Yeah, that, that's where you put your stamp on Rick Springfield's solo artist. I guess so, yeah. And then, of course, uh, you, you moved to the States. Was that an easy transition for you? Uh, yes and no. It was Originally, it was, was kind of easy. It was very exciting, and uh, I was brought over here by, you know, I've been trying to get into the States for about two years, and it was... Uh, very very difficult so um they weren't accepting uh, they weren't accepting people like me musicians i guess uh so um it was great when i find, you know i got a deal with capital records on the strength of uh of speak to the sky and uh, the demos that i'd made up that became my first album and and that brought me over here and uh went to london and recorded the album and um and then went back to America and waited for it to be released to do promotion on it. Right. And it was, you know, it was, it was great initially. I, I mean, all the teen press. I didn't really realize it was teen press. I thought it was, I'd never seen a teen magazine. They didn't have them in Australia. So when I was there, so it was all. I thought it was all music press, you know. And then I saw these articles coming out, you know, aimed at little girls. And I'm going, what the hell is this? <laughs> so um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I went with it for a while because it was, uh, you know, it was a lot of publicity and I was getting a lot of attention. And they were thinking of me to replace David Cassidy on the Partridge Family when he left. 
and it was there was that kind of you know there was a lot of hype right but uh there was no hits other than than speak to the sky and they were going you know 16 magazine was going to give him rick all this press but where's cherish and doesn't somebody want to be wanted and you know and uh, that wasn't what i was writing at the time although speak to the sky was very bubblegum the rest of the album was was you know about divorces and some guy killing himself and it was very much darker stuff yeah. so uh i eventually left those right. managers and that's when it started that's when it got difficult is when i left the managers that brought me over because everybody i knew was connected to them and so suddenly i was alone in uh, in hollywood all by myself with no money and that's that's when it that's when it started to get hard that is uh that is the scariest place to be i've been there i i know exactly what you went through and uh, it's an unforgiving place. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, falling into the acting class was really what saved me. I, I had no friends, and I fell, in, fell into this acting class um, and met, you know, the guy that's still my best friend and started dating his sister and, and fell into the community of actors. And that really, that really saved my, my butt because uh, Doug, his name is Doug Davidson, and he's a, he's a big soap opera actor over here. Um, not when we met. He was just a kid when we met. But he took me in, you know, yeah. took me into his family, and his mom, you know, uh, took care of me and, and brought me into the family. And it was really life saving because I had nobody. Wow! Thank goodness, huh? A white, a white knight. Yeah, my mom always said, you know, that Doug's mom saved my life by bringing me into her family. Oh, absolutely! It can be so treacherous. Now, now, when did uh, Dr. Noah Drake and General Hospital happen? Did that happen a little after that? Did you have a lot of part-time roles before that? Yeah, I had, I had, uh, I got to, became a universal contract player, one of the last universal contract players where they give you like 500 bucks a week okay. and put you on payroll, but you still had to get the, you still had to audition for the parts, but you had a bit of an edge, you know, because uh, you were cheaper than <laughs> Than the outside guy, so I started working yeah. on Incredible Hulk and Rockford Files and Battlestar Galactica and Six Million Dollar Man and Wonder Woman and all those crappy '70s shows. But it was, you know, it was good for me. I mean, <laughs> it, it put, you know, paid the light bill. I guess basically is what it did. Not much more, but it paid the light bill. Now, uh, during the, during that time, were you writing? Were you writing Working Class Dog? No, I was. I wrote uh, two albums actually during that period and. Uh, one of them was released, uh, was the one that Nigel Olsen and Dean Murray, who just left Elton at the time in 1975, 76. Mm. And it was, uh, we, we were the band, me, Nigel, and Dee. I wrote this album called Wait for Night, and they played on Sang on it. And uh, it was a great album. I was really excited for it. And, and we got a record deal, and uh, then the record company folded. So uh, kind of just, just uh, the first single yeah. was going up the charts called Take a Hand. And it was getting good reviews, and it was just, I was just starting to play live, and it was—it uh, really felt like something was going to happen. And then the guy that owned the record company has passed away now, but he was married to Tina Sinatra, and I guess Frank Sinatra gave him the money to start his record company. Right. And when he and then and he divorced Tina Sinatra, so Frank came looking for his money, and I think that's that's when the record company folded. So I was kind of on the on the wrong side of that. What? What? And be in show business. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, man. So tell me about Jesse's Girl and how did that happen? Yeah, I'd, I'd really given up at that point of getting a record deal. I thought, oh, I'm never going to get a record deal. So uh, the knack had just 
been discovered, you know, uh, uh, my Sharona had just been discovered in uh, the L.A. clubs, playing the L.A. clubs, and suddenly the L.A. clubs were really hot. And so I said, well, you know, I'm not going to get a record deal, so I'm just going to write a bunch of, you know, pop, slightly punk, you know, three-chord pop songs and mm. uh, go out and start playing the club circuit. And that's what Working Class Dog was. It was, you know, I, I wrote it to play live with a three-piece band, stuff that I could play real easy and, you know, that yeah. was short. And if you didn't like that song, stick around, there'll be another one right along. It was that kind of yeah. mentality. Yeah. And then I got I got a record deal. I got a record deal, and, uh, and I was managed at the time by Joe Godfrey, who owned Sound City. That was, uh, there was a, the studio that Dave Grohl just did the, the big documentary on. I don't know if you guys got that down there, but it was, uh, it was a really cool documentary. That was about the the desk in the recording studio. I saw that. Yeah, which is a, that, that's a desk I met my wife in front of, and uh, and I recorded down there. That's why I that's why I was in the documentary because I was you know part of the whole Sound City Rat Club. Wow. So uh, Joe owned the yeah. studio, and he Keith Olsen mm-hmm. at the time was a very big producer in the eighties. He'd just done Fleetwood Mac and and Foreigner and uh, uh, Pat Benatar and. Joe said, Rick just got this record deal with RCA. Um, would you, you know, I was an unknown at the time. He said, would you, would you, could I talk you into doing a song with him? And Keith agreed to do two songs, and I took my demos up to his house, and I was very nervous because he was a big-time producer and mm. played in my, my four-track demos, and he picked Jesse's Girl out of him and, uh, and then said, I want to bring in an outside song, which really pissed me off that, but uh, in retrospect, it was a good a good thing. He brought in a Sammy Hagar song called "I've Done Everything for You," and and he produced those two songs, and then I produced the rest, and uh, handed them to RCA, and RCA didn't know what to do with it. They hadn't had a hit since Elvis, <laughs> and uh, it was true. Very <laughs> they had nothing, yeah. and uh, and and they didn't know what to do with it. And it was and country and dis- uh, um, ballads and disco were still on the radio. You yeah. know, they were they were going out, but they were still on the radio. And so they didn't know what to do with a guitar, guitar-based pop rock album. So they just hung on to it and kept delaying the release and delaying the release. And uh, I got called up on this TV show to play a, do- a doctor on this soap opera, and I, I wasn't really into it. I, you know, soap operas, what I thought were for old ladies ironing and yeah. would have no effect on my musical career. So I said, well, t- they offered me, you know. 500 bucks a week so I, I didn't have any money and I didn't know if the record was ever going to be released mm-hmm. so I took the soap opera gig based on that and then uh, then Jesse's girl started getting a lot of play and uh, and suddenly General Hospital was like the number one summer show and it just all happened absolutely serendipitously and wasn't planned and it was just one of those things that I think that if you hang in there long enough you know, your your time will come. I'm mm. always a big believer in that, that, that luck is persistence and, and being prepared. So how did you navigate that? You've got a hit television show and you've got a top ten song all around America. You would have been exhausted through that time. Uh, I had the energy for it, you know, because I'd been waiting a long time and, uh, and a fi- something finally clicked and I wasn't going to let it, okay. you know, get away just because I didn't have the energy or I was too tired to do something so I'd you know I'd be on the show for three or four or five days a week and then I'd go out on the road and tour on the weekend and I didn't sleep much but uh, you know I I, it was a very exciting time yeah records started going up the charts and uh, you know started getting calls for 
more concerts and TV shows and all kinds of things. So it was really exciting. Well, you're still the hardest working rock star in the business. I mean, how many shows a year were you doing before, uh, you know, in 2019? Well, we got up to like 120, 130, I think. But uh, um, now I'm going to cut back just because, uh, you know, I want to enjoy it. I kind of beat myself into exhaustion sometimes uh, because I love to play live. I mean, the reason I go out is because I love to play. I love to play guitar. It's really was a driver in the beginning and it's still the driver. I love to get up on stage with a guitar in my hands and that's the reason I do it. But I want to enjoy it, you know. I, yeah. I don't want to kind of get get up at three in the morning and kind of curse that i got to fly to another town. I want to be excited about it. So yeah. Yeah, I, I take it, you know, take it slowly. Well, I, I uh, really uh, admire Taylor Swift, the way she looks after her fans. And I, I put you... In, the, in a similar kind of vein, because you really, really look after your fans. I've seen photos of you backstage with uh, all these fans around you. you. You tend to give them more than anyone else would. I learned a long time ago. I thought, you know, when you first get successful, you think, oh, it's me. But if, you, if you're in there long enough, you realize it's not you, it's them, that they're keeping you there and that they're the most important thing. You're not the most important thing. So I realized quite a while ago how important fans are, and I, you know, I... I'm uh, humbled that someone's still interested in hearing what I have to do or coming to see me, and and so I, I respect that, and I uh, have done my best to, you know, give them what they want, basically, yeah, within reason. Yeah, of course. Uh, now, have you got uh, <laughs> have you have you got a florist in Malibu that uh, supplies the uh, dozen roses every night for you? <laughs> No, they have fans actually bring those. Sometimes we we'll get put them on the rider, but fans bring roses. Once I started doing that, they they kept bringing it. I, it seemed like something that they would love to do, and you know, so I became the Morticia Adams of rock and roll. Oh my God, that's great, isn't it? That's, that's such good mm. feedback from fans. That's brilliant. <laughs> now, uh, with, with the Malibu fires, I was really worried about you and John Farrar. Um, how did how did you go? Were you okay? Yeah, you know, I was actually in Florida at the time touring, and it was very scary. And uh, we live in right in the mountains in a canyon and uh, right by the water. And we we're very, very lucky that uh, we had great neighbors. We we live in one of the very few neighborhoods in Malibu uh, where it's a real community, and they have they have like their own fire brigade here and and, and uh, security and everything. And they they saved our house basically. We lost fences and. And a right. part of a gazebo that uh, they our neighbors saved our house, and uh, wow. you, you can't you know you can't buy that. I mean, it's really amazing. They're, you got we've got the kind of neighbors that you know when the riots were, were going on and looting, and that they posted a photo of them all like holding guns, saying you know welcome rioters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! Reverse psychology always works. It used to amaze me living over there that, you know, the, the canyon fires and the Santa Ana winds, you know, it's just a, it, it, L.A. or California turns into a horrid place. It's a brutal combination, yeah. It is. It, it is. You know, but I mean, I grew up, you know, I grew up in Australia, out in the country, and we'd, I remember fighting fires coming up to our uh, back fence with, with uh, burlap bags, you know, yeah. beating the grass with the bags. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... 
you know, it's not just the California. And God knows that the awful thing Australia just went through, yeah. losing all the animals and all the, you know, it's just it's the overheating of the the planet for sure. Mm. And uh, mm. we're just getting, starting to get the brunt of it now. Like I was looking at, we're looking at places in uh, in in uh, Key West because I love Key West. Yeah. Uh, you know, down the bottom of uh, of Florida there, um, but uh, I just recently read a thing where they're saying, you know, it's there's going to be parts of Key West we're just going to have to give up to the ocean. We can't save it. Yeah, it's all I of said, a sudden, well, I don't six, think I'll go there. Six, six inches overnight. Hello, it's in the it's in the lounge room. Exactly. So uh, I mean, every 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 place has something. Mm. Um, uh, you know, at least. Generally, the fires, at least you can see that coming. Earthquakes, not so much, but uh, yeah. we haven't had a really bad earthquake for a while. I always say from Melbourne you go to Australia, but from L.A. you go to the world. It's just the way it's set yeah, up. Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? So, so really you are in the perfect spot, mm-hmm. you know, being a, being a musician. Back when I left Australia, it was very hard to get out of Australia. And, and a lot of people don't really remember that, but, I mean, I think uh, the Bee Gees were the first ones that, yeah. We heard, hey, they went to England and they actually have a hit record. You know, every band was going to England because it was, we could get in because of the, the you know, the Commonwealth thing. And I just decided to, I, I lived in England and I said, well, I haven't gone to America yet, so I'll try America. <laughs> so, uh, and and it was very, you know, it was, it was difficult. No one, I, I came over here, when I first came over here in 72, people asked me how long I learned, how long it took me to learn English. I said, wow. I'm from Australia, and they go, wow, how long does it take you to learn English? Yeah. I said, Australia, idiot, not Austria. But there, there was not a lot of awareness of Australia back then, but there is now, yeah. you know, once yeah. once uh, Paul Hogan and ACDC and everybody kind of hit, hit the airwaves, there's a big awareness of Australia now. But it was very different when I left, so um, I felt I had to be over here to have a shot, you know, at uh, yeah. at, yeah. at this. Now you can do it from Australia. Yeah, of course. But you and Colin Hay, you Kenyan guys, you're doing a great job over there. <laughs> I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna have lunch with Colin. I think soon. We're talking about going out with a package with Men at Work and a, a couple of American bands. So we may do that. That would be brilliant. Oh, give Colin, give Colin my yeah. love. Yeah, well. And Rick, you're doing what I I would love to do. You've got a weekly radio show. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, kind of fun. You know, I play as much Aussie stuff as I can, and uh, good on you. Yeah, I always do. I always uh, first the first episode, the first show was actually uh, Australian artists. So you got I got to pick them from the '80s, and they've got to be a it's a, a theme every week. You know, so. Um, but yeah, I always pick, I always have at least one Aussie artist in there. Good on you, man. Well, let's still fly in the flag. I, we we all love you for doing that. Yeah, I am actually. I just had an F, I had a uh, a Holden F, 1955 Holden FJ Ute imported. I just got it. No, really? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm gonna keep it right hand drive, but I gotta do a few things to fix it up to make it, you know legal on this this road these roads but it's i'm going to drive it around it's beautiful man you can put the timber in the back <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool now you and russell morris have been intertwined from the very start i i didn't know that you played on uh, his first album yeah bloodstone right yeah it was a we were, it were the rock and roll thing was it was a small camp back then i remember we could you could fit us all in a hotel room it was uh 
that we are all friends, you know, all friends. And uh, so, you know, it was great to play. And then when you all came to America, you ended up doing, what was it, the 5 o'clock brigade or something with Billy Thorpe and Brian <laughs> Cadd? And, and uh, that was that was Cadd and Thorpe who arranged that. And yeah. Ray Burgess. And, yeah, uh, that, they, we filmed that actually in Sound City. Uh, they were looking for a studio, and I was managed by... Like I said, Joe, who owns Sound City. So I said, yeah, come down. They'll give us Studio B to record oh, that. Oh, is that where that clip was shot? Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Now, it's kind of gone full circle with you and Russell. Not only are you, you know, reforming Zoot and Russell's the lead singer, but you've also worked on this Jack Chrome project. Right. I, I know it's about the Day of the Dead and, and, and all of that, but tell me, how did that all come about? Uh, I've always liked Russell's adventurous you know, spirit, and he always tries new things. You know, like the blues album was very successful for him. Yeah, and uh, and a mate of ours, Bruce Hutchins, who's uh, kind of in charge of the of the whole Jack Rome thing for us. There, um, sent me Russell a, a video of uh, said he said this is Russ, no kidding, and it was him dressed up in uh, in, in skull Day of the Dead makeup, singing a song called Carmelita's Dance. I thought it was amazing, so I I did one called uh, God Forsaken World and filmed that and sent that to him and I said why don't we do a pro- you know, do a whole album of this approach it's very dark very um, yeah. you know mood- moody as hell and uh, we just had fun with it and uh, we-, we finished it in like I don't know like three weeks and uh, it's coming out soon I think I'm not quite sure when but I know it's coming out soon we're going to put the videos out the videos are very cool you, you'll get the idea of the album from them. Oh, great. I can't wait to see it. It sounds like a, you know, having having lived there and having gone through a few Day of the Dead uh, rallies and uh, they have a special day in L.A. Well, it's a, it's a Hispanic holiday for, and it's what, three weeks where the dead come back to uh, to be with the living, you know, and they put food out and, and dance and and it's a really a, a great thing, actually. I, I think it's a better idea than reincarnation, so I, I latched onto it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd like to come back for another 50 years. It'd be terrific. Yeah, I know. As me, right, with the ones you love. I don't want to come back as a horse <laughs> or, some, or some jerk. I want to come back as me. Wait, I am a jerk. I forgot. I am a jerk. Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hey, this is Rick Springfield, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. You're a well-published person. Uh, your first book, Magnificent, Late, Late, Late at Night, and that was on the New York bestsellers list. What, mm-hmm. uh, what made you get into putting it down on paper? Oh, I don't know. I thought about it for a long time. I've had a pretty uh, interesting life, kind of unusual in a lot of respects. Yeah. And... Uh, I just got up one one afternoon, one morning, like three o'clock in the morning. Instead of I'm going to do it, I got to start. So I just started typing, and uh, like, you know, mm. write, writing it out. And uh, we, that's basically what happened. And uh, found a great editor, and she signed me to Simon and Schuster, and uh, they put it out, and it was very successful. I was real happy with it. And then she said, "I like your writing," because I wrote it myself without a ghostwriter. And she said, "I like your writing style. You should yeah. uh, why don't you try novels?" So I'd always loved. You know, I've read all my life nonstop, so I wrote a novel called Magnificent Vibration, which uh, was a New York Times bestseller too. And then I just had my the second yeah. one released, which is called World on Fire, that's uh, put out by Audible. It's uh, an online, it's the main online thing where where yeah. 
novelists read their novels. There's no hard copy. We're going to put out a hard copy in about in about uh, about a month. But uh, the first one was just uh, narration. And, uh, yeah, so that was a, a, mm. a new approach. Everyone's trying to find a new way in, you know, to music and writing and TV and movies and everything. Everything's changed yeah, because of digital. Yeah. So. Well, Rick, you've covered it all. You've been at the coalface for all of it. Uh, not yet. Haven't gone up with Bezos in his friggin' spaceship that looks like a dick. I know. What does that look like? Oh, my God. But I... <laughs> <laughs> when I saw it, I went... That's very phallic. We we actually did a party for his sister. We, I played at a party for his sister because his sister apparently is a fan. And he came to it, and and I said, I said from the stage, I said, Jeff, I got a hair dryer that I got on Amazon out in the car. It's not working. Can I trade it in? <laughs> <laughs> But he was, he was a real nice guy. I mean, he was very cool and very much, you know, into the music. And But, uh, yeah, it's, I, he didn't have the rocket ship back then, so I was going to, I would have asked him. But it's obvious why it looks like a penis. Oh, yeah. Who thought the space race would be from, uh, you know, outside the government? I think that's great. It's, I love it's it. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Now, mm-hmm. now uh, just to wrap up, I've got uh, ten questions to ask before we go. Are you ready for these questions without notice? I am. Question number one, who inspired you to make music? Probably, uh, I guess you'd have to point to Paul McCartney, because he was the first guy I was aware of that actually wrote wrote uh, his songs. And, uh, and, yeah. him and him and Hank Marvin, probably, I would say. Yeah, and you actually saw the Beatles at Festival Hall here. I did, in 1964. I still have my original program. <laughs> that's inc- Well, that, that's worth money now. I know, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and 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 isn't it amazing? They only came out and played for twenty three minutes. I know, and I screamed like a little girl all the way through it. I was I was, <laughs> four, I was fourteen, and I couldn't help myself. They came on stage, and I just started screaming. It was crazy. I said, "What the hell am I doing?" Well, the power of music, mate. <laughs> so, question number two: What what have you learnt over your musical journey? Wow, that's a that's a tough one. Not to trust everybody, I guess. Uh, keep. Keep writing and keep working because you got to keep using the muscle, otherwise it'll go dead. I know guys over here who basically don't write anymore. You don't put out any new music because they say, "What's the point? No one's playing, no one's playing new rock music anymore." But, but still, that's yeah. why I got into it. I got got into it because I loved the process of writing and recording, and and that's why I still do it. So, question three: What was the effect of Countdown to your career? I mean, I was it was uptight. I remember doing uptight and. Uh, I'm sure they played something, a video or something. Yeah, we 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 would have played Jesse's Girl like heck, I'm sure. Question number four: If you could open up a show for any artist, who would it be? Uh, well, <laughs> have to be someone shitty so I look good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. That's it. Leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Question number five: Name your three dinner guests, dead or alive. Uh, John Lennon. Jesus and uh, Paul McCartney. Yeah, lots of interesting questions there, particularly with Jesus. I'd like to ask him a few questions. I know. Question question number six. (laughs) I've got a few too. (laughs) Question number six. What's your favorite song to perform? I think My Father's Chair. uh, I wrote a song for my dad when he died. uh, And and when I play it live, I just sit on the edge of the stage with a little portable piano and it's it's, uh, I can get in contact with wow. all those feelings again. Wow. So. Okay. 
Question seven. What's the most trouble you've ever gotten into? Oh, my God. Where do I start? Jesus. Um... I almost killed the band with a hand grenade in Vietnam. What? What happened? Well, uh, it was very dangerous over there, um, and we, I had a, had a hand grenade, and, uh, and this guy blew it up, you know, under yeah. sandbags, and yeah. screwed the cap back in, the detonating pin, and gave it to me and said, now it's dead, you can throw it at your friends. And so I was sitting in the truck on the way back to the villa, back to Da Nang, and I, I pulled the pin, I was holding the pin, and uh, I pulled it out of the grenade. The grenade still had explosives in it right so i pulled the pin out oh. and i pulled it and i pulled the pin and it got red hot and i dropped it and it went off and if it had oh. been in, screwed into the grenade it would have blown up and killed us all oh my god <laughs> <laughs> so i learned a big lesson then don't Ouch. screw with uh, things you don't know anything about <laughs> question number eight if you could change anything about the music industry what would you do I uh, bring back rock and roll, guitar-based rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, we need on the radio that. on the yeah yeah on the yeah. Radio. It's, it, I was listening to all. The, I was listening to the radio today, and there's there's no guitar, there's no real drums. Yeah. Uh, it's all the same synthesizer. It's all everyone's trying to do the same thing. They all start out with a little dinky, 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 dinky thing, and then moan over it, and then the big kick drum comes in, and they sing the same melodies, and it's like I don't know if I'm sounding like my parents, but. It's, it uh, certainly doesn't, you know, have the variety that our music had. Well, maybe I'm sounding like my parents. No, 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 <laughs> you're not. No, I, I, I'm with you there. Hopefully, the new wave will happen. It'll, you know, people will get sick. Yeah, of, that'd be great. Yeah. Bring guitars back and originality back, and yeah. and chant, taking chances, and you know, it, it's it's uh, it's a drag. It's really there's a lot of great music being made. I mean, I still hear a lot of great stuff. Yeah, but it's mostly band stuff, and you know alternative and there's not a lot happening in the pop world there's nothing like a good guitar riff yep yep que I agree. question number nine what's the best show that you've ever done oh wow i don't know i'm probably the wrong person to judge that i've had a lot of fun on them uh doing them uh, what, what, what what's the biggest the I, what's the biggest crowd i i saw you uh on the back of a semi-trailer, uh, there's a clip on YouTube, and there's like it looks like two hundred thousand people in the crowd. Uh, there were, I did a show in Germany at the Nurburgring for there was like a quarter of a million people there, wow. and I actually did a New Year's Eve show in from Times Square, and I think there were a million people in Times Square. <laughs> that was pretty crazy. Gee, that's amazing, amazing. Now, final question: What have you mm -hmm. learnt? And what would you pass on to a young, hopeful Rick Springfield? Well, uh, A, like I said, don't trust everybody. Everyone's not out there for your good. They're out there for their career. Because, you know, when you get into it, you think, oh, wow, they're all here to help me. No. And um, uh, don't take investment advice from your hairdresser. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's all stuff that's happened. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh man. Uh, what a you know, don't, don't, don't be a jerk. Basically, don't be a jerk, too. Rick Springfield, you're an absolute champion. I've loved your work from day one, and I still love your work. I, I thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Gavin. My pleasure, bud. All the best. All the best to you, too. Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast was thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.